Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Food for Thought, y'all. A podcast gab fest where in a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, identity, culture, what we like to read, and who we like to read. Food for Thought, the Flaming Hot Cheetos of podcast. No! Yes! I love Flaming Hot. It meant we're high in calories and we will kill you. <laughs> and give you bad shits, mama. <laughs> You will never bottom again after listening to this episode. I'm Fran. I'm a writer, editor, and my first Disney princess was Selena Quintanilla. Aww. I am Joseph Osmondson, scientist, nonfiction writer, as we learned tonight, fisting switch. Bye. And I'm like Yo Play in that my fruit is on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> the bitch brought in Yo Play. <laughs> I can't even. <laughs> And I'm Dennis Norris II, and I'm a reader, writer, former figure skater, and while I like to spill the tea, I love to lick it up. Oh my god, bye. I'm Alexander Chi. I'm the author of How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. Yes, she yeah. is. Oh, Maddie. A professor, and I'm at the edge of my... Muscle Bear 50s. Ooh. Yes. Slide into her In DMs. training for it. <laughs> yes, Addy. We have Alexander Chi back in the house. Ooh. We are so delighted Ooh. to have him, um, our official pod father, um, and replacing Teeps this week. So thanks for joining us, Alex. Yeah. It's such a pleasure to be back. Thank you. Yes. What do we got on the menu this week, Dennis? So for today, Ho leads us in a new game of choices. We ask blisteringly real questions of the greatest thought auntie that ever lived. Mm -hmm. We discuss autobiography and turning inward for art. And for dessert, we bring you the daughter of the iconic queen of the night. Ooh. Ooh. Take it it away. away. (laughs) Num 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 thoughts. We're going to start this show off the way that any good top should, with a little tease, a small bite for your palate and your mind. Our Amuse Bouche this week is a game that we came up with. It's like a thoughtified version of Never Have I Ever, because even though that game is for nasty folks to talk about nasty shit they've done, we have to take everything to the next level. Our game is called I Thought Not, and so I'm just going to list a bunch of activities, and if you <laughs> thoughts have done them, you say, I thought so. And if you thoughts have not done them, you say, I thought not. Seems straightforward I, It's so You've really revolutionized this game. So. <laughs> I mean, I really think it's better than the original, but that's fine. It it's, absolutely is. It's always, That's because the original is just really shitty and was made to, like, exploit middle schoolers. I can't tell you them admit embarrassing things. how many times I played that game, like, 
in seventh grade and was like rock hard in my pants. So excited. Oh it was like God. the most yeah. sex I ever had as a teenager. I was can't playing, remember never playing had I ever. And the, and, the, and the thing was that I had never done any of the things. That was, see, in seventh grade, I was the opposite. I was just like completely depleted because I hadn't done anything. Oh. And I was like, oh, I must be the least sexy person alive. Oh, baby. I was playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I, I was doing <laughs> Oh, I was babies. giving head in the basement of the Parmentown Mall. Mall. Yes, <laughs> Clearly, I fucking Parmentown Mall. I've made up for it since <clears throat> you guys. All right, um, all right. Um, so I thought so. I thought not. Written an autobiographical novel. I thought so. Is that how it is? Yeah, I thought so. You've written one. Yeah. Oh wow. My, my, I mean, my my the first draft of my novel, which I finished when I was a sophomore in college, is a really first really shitty first draft of my novel but it is um autobiographical wow um in a weird way alex i thought so yeah <laughs> yes. i think we might be three out of three here dennis and, um i like to refer to my novel as semi-autobiographical okay. please okay. Uh, are you kidding me <laughs> it is true that the protagonist's first name is uncannily similar to mine what is the name Davis. <laughs> oh my God! You're not even so trying. <laughs> De- hey, wait, 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 Dennis Colin. I'm not even trying. <laughs> oh my God! My memoir. My bye. memoir. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> but you spell out colon. <laughs> We're off to a great start. Oh, we are off to Fire. such a good start. Um, Joe has not written an autobiographical novel because I just own all of my bullshit and call it memoir. I'm such an idiot. Yeah. Wow. Um, you really should. Dis- Distance yourself a bit from that. Yeah, I should uh, before I get fired from my job. Um, had, <laughs> had sex in a bar, and and this is meant to be not a bar that's meant for sex. Um, I, I thought not. Wow, Alex, <laughs> you guys can't see this if you're not on mic. His eyes—he just did the deepest smiles I've ever seen. He's either considering whether the bar he had sex in was or was not a sex bar, or whether the act that he was engaged in was or was not classified as sex. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I thought not. <laughs> what was the act? Mm. Uh, <laughs> Alex is like, it's dirty over when you don't <laughs> Worn a blonde wig and makeup. I thought so. Yeah. Um, I thought so. Yeah. Thought Alex has so. a gorgeous essay about it. You have, Dennis? Mm-hmm. Wow. Wait, really? I need to see it. In college. To see there may evidence. be old Facebook pictures. You have too, Joe. Right? Oh, no, no not blonde, Burnett. I've never worn... <laughs> Actually, I, you're right. I have worn a, I have worn a wig. And I also... Was my it blonde? put in extensions that were really gorgeous. There's you were really pictures. pretty. Yeah, no, no, no. The extensions worked really well. They, they actually were, looked like, really al- real. You were, like, alarmingly pretty. Yeah, I think I think it would work. Because my, yeah. my my face kind of has naturally um, some color to it. Naturally and girlish like, uh, features? Yeah, that's what I was going for. <laughs> um, so, next thought, so thought not. Accidentally danced to a Taylor Swift song without knowing it was her. <clears throat> never accidentally. you know what i i have a i have a dark past i'm not proud of it i used to be a huge taylor swift stan and i i danced to her to no end her ascension to midwestern soccer mom now no longer is complete no more dancing alex i thought so yeah with my (gasps) nephews on i was on we were in hawaii and they just 
love Shake It Off. And yeah, that was mine too. It's so catchy. I didn't know it was her. Yeah. Well, it's and they were adorable. Yeah. So, so you have to. You know. You got, yeah, you just gotta go with the kids. You gotta go with the kids. I'm gonna say I thought so, and I'm also going to say that. I'm not ashamed. I still like Shake It Off. Oh my god! Or I mean, I'll still, that, that I'll still everybody. date to it. I dance to it. 1999 was one of my favorite albums too uh, that I've ever listened to. Period. Wow. And it, and then it's I can't even go back to it now. It's so it's just different. That's not even the year she was born, right? I don't think. So. Oh, was it? It was. I thought was it? it was. Oh, was it? Yeah. oh okay. Yeah, She's a faker. Is. She's a faker in all regards. <laughs> <laughs> a white supremacist. She'll sue us for saying that. Though. Um, so. Next up, written about an ex for revenge. Um, actually, <laughs> Alex is laughing already. <laughs> I am all about that laugh. I've never not not <laughs> written about. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I've never not written about a sex group. I just I I only write to as revenge on my exes. Okay, great. Exclusively. I thought so. Yeah. Alex? I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, it's a it's a funny thing to think about. And I think in in the end I regretted it, but at the time it felt urgent. Urgent, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's it's just one of those lessons I guess that you learn Along the way. <laughs> something something about time. Um, I thought not. None of yeah. my exes have done any enough to me to make them worth putting into my writing. Mm-hmm. So. so I'm either lying to myself or I thought not. Because I write a lot about my exes, but revenge is never the motivation. I always actually feel bad uh-huh. if it... Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Did you read your book? I did. I did read my book. Um, mm-hmm. Fucked someone for revenge. Oh, absolutely. Wait, fucked someone yeah. at revenge sex. Revenge sex. Oh my god, it's my favorite. It, it's I have, I have no. That's your sexuality. I truly that, like I, I can feel bad about other forms of revenge, but I'll never feel bad about revenge sex. <laughs> when we talk about revenge fucking, are we talking about like, like? Fucking someone to get revenge on someone else? Usually, yes. Okay. Um, or, it can, yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought so. Yeah. Wow. It's happened. Um, next up we have slid into the DMs. I thought so. Oh my God. It's like my gender. <laughs> I know. I can't wait to hear Alex's response to this next series. <laughs> slid into the DMs, Alex. I mean, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and wh- how do you... Oh, I think I know what you mean. On Instagram, yeah, not necessarily, not necessarily sexually, but like, (laughs) (laughs) damn, I was really hoping to get. I mean, (laughs) or even on Facebook, I know. Well, that is how I met my husband. Exactly. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, interesting. Um, Um, Although I was very, I was not. The approach that I made was flirtatious, but not forward. But that's, that's, I would say that's the the DM sliding. That's like where you should start. You you feel it out. I I never forward. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Are are we just talking sexually, right? No, like flirtatiously. Oh, then no. I thought not. Mm-mm. Oh, but you, you're a bottom in terms of DM sliding, too, because I know people I have slid into your DMs, Dennis. <laughs> well, and, and I actually this is the way well, the world meant it but... to be. Like, I, I just, <laughs> no. Um, yeah. Next up, I've been bound or gagged for sex? Uh, bound, but not gagged. Wow. Uh, I thought not. Wow. Um, I, I feel like Alex is a dom top. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm inclined to agree. Um, 
I thought not, but I would like it to happen. Wow. So slide into the DMs. Oh someone. my god! Let's make it happen. Can I second that? That's yeah, wow. I would. Li- I'd like to go there. <laughs> that sounds um, great. I have. I thought so to everything. Um, claim, <laughs> next up, claim to have read a book that I haven't read. Oh yeah, I thought so. Absolutely. Oh my god, I'm trying to think of the first. It's probably a gay book. Uh, it'll come back to me. I don't know. I'll yeah. think about it. You thought so, mm. Alex? This is the darkest question yet. <laughs> <laughs> I thought not. I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that I, I, I remember the sort of like those first publishing parties when I got to New York yeah. in the early 90s. And I think, if anything, the so many people seemed to be doing it that it seemed like a, a kind of emotional boundary or something. Mm-hmm. Also, it's just so dangerous. Like it really, the, the, is. really, it's so. Question. Uh, yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> like just in our industry, it's yeah. so dangerous to pretend yeah. that you've done that. Dennis, I agree. I'm ter- I'm terrified to get caught in the lie. So I thought not. Mm-mm. That's, that's wow. so good. I will always be like, oh, but I'm going to read it. I swear, I'm just so busy. Bookmarked. Bookmarked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Bookmarked. For those of you who don't know, Dennis's favorite thing to do is to. <laughs> To post an article on Facebook without reading it yeah. and saying, bookmark. <laughs> and I'm not posting it for anyone else. I'm just like, I can find it on my Facebook page. There are so it, many you know? other ways to uh, accrue and save articles online. <laughs> All right. Ne- never have I ever had someone claim to fuck me that I've never fucked. There it is. Y'all requested it. it was I was on the list. Not that, but I have had people have sex with me and then later tell people that they didn't. <laughs> and I'm like, cool, that makes me feel great. Um, but it's oh, mostly dear. because they, uh, I, I tend to um, black blacklist people and, <laughs> and I think they were intimidated. Alex, have you? Oh, people have lied about me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mostly I know who they are. Oh, that helps. Oh, yeah. Dennis. Um, I thought so. A boy in high school lied and 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 told some people that I had given him head. Ooh. And I in had the not. basement of the Parmatown Mall. Well, no, that boy didn't lie. Oh. That <laughs> happened. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I had a I had a, a boy tell some people. Amazing. When I was in college, everyone, all of my male friends, after I came out, everyone thought that I was having sex with all of them. Wow. And yeah. that they were gay, and it was this very. I don't know if it was it sounds really toxic. Wesleyan or the yeah. 80s or what, but I just I remember that it was like a I mean we're all very affectionate with each other. Okay. Um and do you find you can do that with straight men? Be affectionate with them? Yeah, physically affectionate. Yeah. yeah. That's really hard. I yeah. I think back in the back in the 80s we all felt really dangerous to each other. Mm. Gay men. Yeah. Mm. Like, Hilton Niles wrote about that in yeah. his book, right? Not being able to touch the people he loved the most because it felt like that it was going to put one of them in the grave. Dustin remembers uh, in Hell's Kitchen where we live in New York. He remembers when he first got that apartment in the early 90s, like at sunset, men would go up on the roof and beat off and look at each other. <gasps> oh, wow, that's so beautiful. Oh my God, that is so hot. That that's, kind of that's really romantic. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow, I love that. I, Constellations. Well, what a delicious and sad. <laughs> New life goal. Way to end. <laughs> this is <laughs> news Num num. Milky way. Oh, the Milky oh, way. Bye. 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 Bye.
You're we welcome. are trash. <laughs> Pull out your change purses, benches. It's time for Penny for Yum Yum. But this week we have esteemed guest thought. Alexander Chi, who I don't know if all you out there know this, but he sort of uh, is a great mentor and has mentored kind of uh, all of us, all of us, all, all of us. us in this room, first of all, and then Team kind of a well. generation of, of younger gay writers, I would say. And so we all kind of look to him both as a model for uh, living and writing a life, but also we come to you with questions. And so that's, that's what we're going to do on the show today. We all came up with a uh, a little query for our <laughs> you, gay auntie. I'm just going to have to take it. <laughs> 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 We're not paying him. <laughs> ready. No hourly rate here. All right, but Fran he is Fran is going to lead it off. I do. Um, thank you, Alex. Um, so mine's uh, plain and simple. What's What's one thing about writing your first novel that you feel you really got wrong? Like a thing wherein, like you were writing it and you were like, "Wow, I definitely had a com- like." Ten years later, or tw- twenty years later, you're like, "I definitely had a." a huge misunderstanding about what I thought it meant to write a novel in this way. You know, a lot of what I had to teach myself was stamina Mm -hmm. for the long haul and learning how to to create a a process that I could commit to that would help me reach the end goal of like a finished novel Mm -hmm. rather than just kind of sitting down and hacking at it Mm -hmm. the way that I had often worked before so it was you know i remember one summer i rewrote the same 35 pages over and over and over oh, no. uh, <laughs> i've done that <laughs> and you know i was doing this thing that i had like read that joan didion did where you know she like oh, no. read and and revised every page as she went to you know create more of them and i'm just not that I'm not that kind of writer. I can't do that. Yeah. I think so much of uh, getting through it is like figuring out, you know, what is your process? What works best for you? You know, you can try out the things that your favorite legends talk about, but you should really be paying attention to whether they succeed for you. First of all, that's like very helpful to hear. But I also think that um, my question flows pretty naturally. Um, from that one. And I wanted to ask you about the... So there was a 15-year gap in between the publication of your first novel and the publication of your second novel. And, um, I mean, I'm not even at the point of a second novel yet. I'm working on a first. But I really am curious to know about the perseverance that happened in in between those two things that you had to um, obviously embody in order to finish the second book and to keep it moving. Um just in the process, but it can be, you can write, talk about either novel, but in the process, like as long as it is, how were you able to maintain faith in yourself, faith in the project, faith in um, the value of that end goal of like having a finished novel? Um, how did you just get through the slogging, the daily slogging that it takes to get there? Well, I think, you know, there were there were times when I wasn't working on it at all where I just, I felt stuck. And uh, I think I realized that part of the, pretty early on I realized that the scale of what I needed to learn to write that novel was just beyond what I had imagined. And so I was doing a lot of research. Uh, I was doing a lot of other kinds of writing. A lot of the essays that are in the collection, for example, grew 
and were written uh, during that time. Um, I wrote, I selected those essays out of 70. Wow. Wow. Um, okay, so where can we get the <laughs> other, like, the second, second collection? <clears throat> well, I was thinking about that because I think, you know, I could have another collection out pretty quickly if I wanted to. And, and I'm trying to figure, as I think about, like, what the next books are and, you know, trying to published before the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> nervous laughter, yeah. nervous laughter. It's very, um, very fair. <laughs> if this um, is writing career by committee, though, I vote yes, yeah. because I would love to read them. You know, to finish the answer about perseverance, it's like, it's good to be good at other things, Yeah. to be honest, so that when the writing's bad, you're like, well, at least I can do a handstand. <laughs> Which I can, I can do. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> I'm or you know, I can do a handstand. It really helps if writing isn't the sole source of your self-esteem as well as your professional validation as well as your, you know, like if it's everything, then when the writing's going badly, uh it can really be a profound crisis. Yeah. So, I kept discovering different like layers to it that I wanted to excavate beyond what I was doing. I also had a profound mistrust of my original idea as well that mm-hmm. definitely was a block. And I think one lesson of that time is, you know, learning to trust those ideas, even if they seem embarrassing, even if they seem garish, even if they seem like you're wasting your time to be very wary of feeling like your idea embarrasses you, you know, because I think especially for queer fiction, uh, being, being willing to engage with what's considered bad taste Mm -hmm. is like incredibly important. Yeah, it is. That's, yeah. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definition of camp. Um, so my question to round us out, and of course I'm going to ask about dating because it's my life. This is very important, <laughs> um, honestly. So like, Alex, I'm curious. So I've noticed I'm single now. This is Joe. Um, Are you single, Joe? I'm super single. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Are you single? I'm doing great. Um, Phone number. I've, I've noticed that being a writer has actually made dating harder. Uh, particularly a writer who writes about aspects of my own life, which is something we're going to talk about in the main segment. Um, and I know, you know, when I broke up with my ex, I actually, you're one of the first people I reached out to because I know that you met your partner later in life. And I'm just kind of curious about how you navigated this space. And the book is a lot about sort of like healing in order to be able to love in a sustainable way. And so I think we'll talk about that later, but just sort of how do you negotiate being a person who writes publicly, a person who dates, a person who wants to accept like partnership and love into your life? Uh, and all, all the while you have like all of the past traumas that we've accumulated. It's like the older we get, the more traumas we carry. And that can be an impediment to like intimacy. And then like writing can be an impediment to intimacy. Like how do you sort of negotiate that as you moved into your like, you know, middle to late thirties and forties? Well, I, you know, I think um, it's important that you don't imagine that all of those things accumulate in the manner of like a scar like you don't turn into like one big mass of calcified scar tissue, Joe. <laughs> just, <laughs> that's how it feels, Joe. Joe that, you like just said that. uh, that's Joe's Twitter bio. <laughs> <laughs> one huge calcified scar tissue. <laughs> Um, wait can we please change Change your bio to that right now now. it's accurate so i uh it's funny you know i actually i did an interview earlier today with someone who he was asking he he was like so are you still afraid of blonde men and (laughs) (laughs) and i was like did i say that and then i had to like think back he's like well you know you said and he sort of cited 
the, the, the place I said it. And, <laughs> you cited the citation where I said right. the thing. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, I, I, did, I did write that. Um, but I realized that I had actually metabolized that, that I had processed that, that I had gone through all of that. You know, I remember this friend of mine, it's like a long drunken night accompanying him from like bar to bar in New Haven. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he told me like all of his, all of his like troubles I was trying to give him advice that was increasingly drunken as the night went on. <laughs> but there was a moment, there was a moment that like happened where he's like, how are you so wise? And I, and the answer came like, I was like, am I wise? And then I was like, I've made a lot of mistakes, uh, you know, um, like, and, and um, you, you learn from them and you just keep moving. And I think the thing that you have to keep for yourself is a sort of reservoir of self-forgiveness, you know, where you... Give yourself room to be human as a writer and as a person. As for the being a writer being, you could institute the three-year rule, mm-hmm. which is where you don't write about things until the, it's three years later. Mm-hmm. And that might give you some white space around your material. Joan Didion made a really remarkable transformation where she got sick of being that girl in the dress on the edge of the Corvette. And yeah. she just like started writing different, much more researched, much more reported kinds of yeah essays like she's still known for being that woman you know with the cigarette and the sunglasses because those pictures are iconic but she really was running away from them as she proceeded to do what i consider like middle period joan so you could just you know make a what would joan didion do bracelet (laughs) merch it's happening (laughs) this message comes from iHeartRadio sponsor mercury insurance If you're looking to save some money, you should really think about getting a quote from Mercury, because Californians save an average of $677 with Mercury. It's quick and easy, and in just a few minutes, you might find you could save a lot of money on your auto and home insurance. Plus, Mercury was named one of America's best insurance companies by Insure.com four years in a row. Low rates, big discounts, great insurance. Go to MercuryInsurance.com today to get a quote. It's crazy how much we have to pay for outdated, impersonal health care, and even crazier that we all just accept it. It's time to face facts. Healthcare is backwards. Luckily, there's Forward, a new approach to primary care that's surprisingly personal and refreshingly straightforward. Forward never makes you feel like just another patient. Backed by top-rated doctors and the latest tech, Forward gives you access to personalized care whenever you need it. Using in-depth genetic analysis and real-time blood work, Forward's top-rated doctors provide you with in-depth insights to better understand your genetics, mental, and physical health. They then create custom, easy-to-understand plans to help guide you to achieving long-term health. With Forward, you get unlimited in-person visits with your doctor and access to care anytime via the Forward app, all for one flat monthly fee. It's time to stop accepting backwards health care and start moving your health forward. Visit GoForward.com today to learn more. That's GoForward.com. 20 years ago, you fell in love with the Gilmore Girls for 154 episodes and four movies. On the I Am All In podcast, Scott Patterson, a.k.a. Luke Danes, everyone's favorite grouchy diner owner, takes us down memory lane. Tune in to the I Am All In podcast to relive the Gilmore Girls saga one episode at a time. We'll share stories. We'll share the memories. I've got a million stories to tell, especially about Sean Gunn and Milo Ventimiglia and a lot of other people, too. Scott will take you back 
back to Stars Hollow, Luke's Diner, Dosey's Market, Miss Patty's, even Mrs. Kim's Antique Shop. I know you guys have been binge-watching it through COVID and, you know, for 21 years and generations of families and mothers and daughters, and let's watch it together. If you can smell snow, if Paris isn't just a city in France, and Friday night dinner is a requirement, you won't want to miss this. Listen to the I Am All In podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Couric, here to tell you that my podcast, Next Question, is back with a whole new season. New guests, new topics, same curious me. My next question. My next question. My next question. So here's my next question. I want to talk about all the things, like how we're going to get to a post-COVID world. Can you even imagine it? How to heal from the trauma of this year and how to find and share joy despite it all. Join me for season three of Next Question with Katie Couric. New episodes every Thursday. Subscribe and listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. WWJDD. Oh my God. It's only one extra letter. And now it's time for the meat of our conversation, the thought process. Sorry. You're a bu- not sorry. A bunch of meat lovers here. <laughs> so, um, gay or straight, top or bottom, man or woman, fact or fiction. These are just a handful of some of the binaries that many believe make up the world that we live in. I often feel like as people of color, as queer people, as gender non-binary people, we are often asked to make choices aligning ourselves with these binaries. Mm. And this happens in our personal lives, our political lives, and sometimes in our writing lives too. As you know, at Food for Thought, we believe in the idea that binaries are far less interesting and less truthful than blurred lines. Messiness is part of our brand. <laughs> truly, truly. <laughs> I mean, we get messy off the rosé, okay? Dennis knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> but to get to the messiness, we often have to turn our writerly eye inward to find something of clarity there. Our thought auntie, Alexander Chi, is with us in the studio today to celebrate and discuss his forthcoming collection of essays, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, and the Concept of Autobiography at Large. I'm going to read just a quick excerpt from the book that I believe really encapsulates the question I'm about to ask all of you. It's from the essay, Girl. It's from page 62. Kind of okay. (laughs) Um, So many pages from this book were life-changing to read. This moment um, was incredibly meaningful to me for many reasons. Um, In it, Alex and his boyfriend and some friends are dressing up in drag for Halloween in the Castro. And I'm going to go from there. In this moment... The confusion of my whole life has receded. No one will ask me if I am white or Asian. No one will ask me if I am a man or a woman. No one will ask me why I love men. For a moment, I want Fred to stay a man all night. There's nothing brave in this. Any man and woman can walk together in love and unharassed in this country, in this world. And for a moment, I just want to be his overly made-up girlfriend all night. I want him to be my quiet, strong man. I want to hold his hand all night and have it be only that, not political, not dangerous, just that. I want the ancient reassurances legislated for by centuries, by mobs. And so, I turn to my dearest 
darlingest, and most delectable tater thoughts. Oh <laughs> with a question about autobiography. Uh, the carbs. <laughs> always with the carbs. I want to hear about a time when writing about your own life led you to discover something about yourself. Ooh. Something you wanted, something you needed. Mm-hmm. Offered you clarity where there was once confusion. I want to hear about a time when looking inward helped you understand something that you hadn't previously understood. Writing a character that is very similar to me helped me realize that I am addicted to my own anxiety. Ah! <laughs> Sorry. I put that on Facebook like two hours ago. Oh my God, did you really? The, the concept of being addicted <laughs> did, yeah. to your own anxiety. I mean, yeah, it wasn't, it's it's such a, it's, I think I was just, I was writing this character and at a, uh, over and over again, a deeply anxious character that has a lot of undiagnosed shit because he doesn't have a therapist. And um, I, I, the, after a while, the character started to annoy me. And I was like, I was like, I was like, why are you throwing yourself into this over and over and over again? And then I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that comes to mind for me. Yeah. I feel like that's really freaking deep. Yeah. Sorry to start us off with a hardball there. No, that's a great one. We like hard balls here. <laughs> all, all balls, actually. Wait, balls. I don't know if I want them like super hard. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't. Once I start imagining, like, like, I don't know, like, what does that a mean? Marble like <laughs> ball. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> bye. Alex. Sorry, Alex. That's okay. We are deeply not. I mean, I think that you know that essay in particular, for example, is uh, something I wrote because I realized that night when I was looking in the mirror that I was finally happy with my face when Mm. I had made it up in drag. And so there was this way in which like, you know, up until then I had always felt kind of freakish. Mm. Um, But for being able to kind of draw it into place as it were, um, that noise stopped. And I think... You know, what's funny to me also about the the essay and, and then also the the book and the book's cover, which we were just talking about, like, I look at that picture of myself on the cover and thinking about how ugly I thought I was back then. Mm. You know, like, there's, you know, there's everything from, like, youth is wasted on the young. You know, I, I also, like, I had been very chubby as a kid mm. uh, in high school and had been sort of eating my way through all of that all the sort of childhood stuff that went into edinburgh all the sexual abuse hidden sexual abuse and uh, the death of my father and believing Mm -hmm. that i was you know somehow responsible even for his death i had like i had taken that on Mm -hmm. and then in college i just i lost 60 pounds one year and I didn't even know what I looked like, I feel you know, so and, mm-hmm. uh, and suddenly people were kinder to me. They wanted to have sex with me. Yeah. They like, you know, were paying attention to me and it was narcotic. It was like a drug. Right. And I, uh, and I kept thinking every time I saw myself, I would be surprised that I still looked like that as if like, as soon as I turned away, from any reflection, I would just go back to being that person. Wow. I mean, Alex, it's so interesting that you bring that up as an example. I mean, I feel like I write um, 
primarily when I don't understand. And the writing is a process of self-excavation and self-interrogation um, in- to try to make me understand. And one of the first times I did that was about exactly this relationship to my own body. Because I had sort of started going to the gym uh, for mental health reasons, for for my anxiety. Uh, and then it transformed my body. And then I started getting attention for the body. And then I started going to the gym for that. Um, and I was deeply uncomfortable with that. Mm. Uh, and so I wrote an essay about going to the gym that um, was sort of about interrogating those ideas and working through it myself on the page. And I find for me that being accountable to an editor and being accountable to a reader and to an audience helps me be more honest with myself. So for me, sort of doing that work publicly, I feel like I am really afraid of being caught in a lie much more so publicly than with my own self. So kind of doing that work in a way where I imagine um, other people interacting with it helps that process. Do you have any relationship to sort of working through these things on the page as opposed to working through them just, you know, with a <laughs> motherfucking therapist or like, uh, you know, with yourself, your friends? Like what what advantage does writing through the the process give you? Well, I do think therapy will make you a better writer. <laughs> I agree with that. Um, Same. Shout out uh, Dr. Eric. <laughs> you know, the the point of writing all that stuff down isn't to kind of self-therapize. It's to take that pain and make something uh, that uh, offers other people insight into their own situation hmm. um, so that you haven't gone through it for nothing, as it were. Okay. You know, like, mm-hmm. not that it, I mean, it would be enough to go through it and learn about yourself. Yeah. But if you can also, like, give somebody else some clarity where they didn't have any, then then you've done something beautiful. Right. So you're sort yeah. of saying that, like, the the relationship, the, the, the art that you make from the pain sort of gives a reason to have gone through the pain or it makes the pain sort of less um, debilitating. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's so tricky, right? I yeah. think that there's a, a lot of people I know are are – probably rightly annoyed by the idea that writing could be therapy, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. cause certainly like what could be more boring than to be in somebody else's therapy session. Oh my God. Right? Like, I'm so worried about boring yeah. my therapist. <laughs> you have to, you have to drop that. <laughs> <laughs> you pay him. Uh, <laughs> or your insurance is paying you. Want. <laughs> Who can, that's, yeah, that's it's, the key. Make it about you, Joe. Not, <laughs> not about him. <laughs> you don't have to be interesting for him. <laughs> Go you on. could like, actually well, make that a topic. This, this podcast has turned into my therapy. It turns out I am so sorry, everybody. Every I feel like the world turns into your therapy. The, yeah, Are the world kidding? turns into your therapy. Are you kidding me? That's Every for Twitter, time. not for Who for Thought. Everything. Everything. <laughs> Everything. That piece of paper. The Everything pizza I at 7 Eleven turns into your therapy. It turns into my sadness. Every book you read. Like, what's that biblical thing where everything you touch turns into, like, salt? Like, that's me with I mean, my you're, sadness. You're fucking barista anymore. <laughs> Yeah, like, I think you somehow mixed up Midas that, and the tale yes, of Sodom and Gomorrah. I was just going to say, it's all. It's all. Yeah, yeah, no. Anyway. I'm not the one for the biblical expert. expert. No, it, I, it's not so much that your pain was is somehow made more bearable, because I think, um, you know, you have to, you have to deal with that yourself, mm. you know. And I think one thing that I do caution students with for example when they're writing about difficult things is like mm-hmm. i ask them to to think about a writing process that they can survive yeah mm-hmm. 
you know, where, you know, it, if there, if a lot of stuff is coming up and it's very difficult, mm-hmm. sometimes the best thing you can do is to back off and like yeah. give whatever you're writing some time because there's no, there's no reason to push yourself into something that you're not ready to handle in the process of writing something. There's, it's just not worth it. When you're ready, however, for having gone through it mm-hmm. and you think, okay, I know these things now. I can tell people these things. That's, that's something that okay. is different, yeah. I think. Although yeah. it is always true that so often that writing essays feels like dying. Did it bring back up? <laughs> <laughs> there, did, I have wait. a question on that for the table for everyone because mm-hmm. I think, Dennis, you're writing so much about fathers and you lost your father, which is probably the greatest trauma in your life. Fran, you're talking about writing and self-discovery feeling like self-harm. And Alex, my goodness, like the the things you write through in this book are just incredibly difficult. There's so much trauma <laughs> in the book. How how do you all manage how do you all man? How do you manage writing about your father, Dennis? Given that that's the biggest lo- or your your father in quotes, but writing about yeah. you know effeminate black boys and fathers, given that you lost yours. And Alex, how did you manage the trauma that you were holding in this book as you were sort of editing these essays and writing them together? And Fr- Fran, I guess the same. If it's that fucking yeah, point to my trauma. <laughs> what, do you, what, do you got? what do you got for me? I mean, I mean, <laughs> NBD. Like, <laughs> well, for me, like I. I feel like subtlety, the word is part of my vocabulary, but it as a practice or a philosophy, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's part of the way I move through the world at all. I am an effeminate gay black man. My father died within three, within six months of his death. I was writing a novel about um, that kind of the tensions in that relationship. And I just sort of think that for me, it was low hanging fruit and I didn't Aww. like, I couldn't get past what was yeah. right in front of me. And maybe of part of it was that he died in my first semester in my MFA program. So right at the moment when I, I took out loans to like pay for me to jump into this thing that I hoped would become a career. And right at the time that I was able to begin to orient my life, beginning to orient my life around writing um, because I, I didn't have to really, I mean, I had a job in grad school, but it wasn't like, a shift anywhere like I could spend the majority of my days reading and writing and being in class maybe it was just that it was a it was a logical link and if it had been a different time in my life it wouldn't have been so logical but um I I was like this is the thing that I'm dealing with and struggling with this is my this is the preeminent these are the preeminent tensions in my life these are the questions that keep me up at night my relationship with my father my relationship with masculinity my the intersections between masculinity and race for me and for my identity and i just was like why would i work around these when they're literally right here and i knew i knew when i started it that it would that it would probably take me a long time because i had no distance from it mm-hmm. and i and i was like well people are telling me that you need distance and blah 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 and and i was like this has just happened and so in some ways I get frustrated because it's been six and a half years that I've been working on this novel and I'm not done yet, but I also feel like that's just part of processing things and getting distance on things so that you can take them and, and create art. Yeah. But the real answer to that is that it was just right. It was right there. Like it was right, was right in there. front. Was yeah. Right there. Some, sometimes there's no noble motive. Like sometimes the motive yeah. is an impulse, right? I mean, you just are like, yeah. And uh, certainly it's, I think when you're dealing with loss, it's one way to be with them is oh, to wow, yes. write about them. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, and that's certainly something that, like, you know, I was doing when I wrote After Peter, for example, mm-hmm. you know, which was a kind of way to to be with that person I'd lost in a kind of different way than I had in life. Mm-hmm. Um, 
It's... Well, you have just killed me <laughs> at this table I mean, right now. I have that. <clears throat> that yeah. Okay. Thank you from our, our queen of subtlety. Uh, Dennis is dead. I am he's dead. Subtly, Speaking sub- of subtle, you can't see this, dead. but he's wearing like a giant furry orange orange sweater. Like, and pleather pants. Like, is, is Dennis, Dennis James because you're just a giant peach. Dennis is Big Bird right now. And Big Bird, is, Big Bird is also the world's most epic bottom. So it's perfect. Well, there we go. But literally, that for me the idea that part of why I'm hanging on to the process and prolonging it in some ways and I get frustrated with myself might be because when this is gone my father's presence in my life for the last seven years may feel Baby. like it's gone I that has literally never crossed my mind yeah. but Jesus yeah ah! mm. sorry Sorry. <laughs> what? How do so, you, Alex? I have a question. Sure. Just in terms of writing about yourself in general, how do you navigate? Um, because we're on the topic of like writing about people that you've lost, or writing about experiences that are potentially um, hard to write about, especially if they just happened. Yeah. How do you, as a writer, negotiate, or how do all of y'all negotiate when you're too close to something and it? The, the product that you might create might be too insular for public consumption or, or, or do you ever feel like you have to take time after the incident in order to write about it? Or do you just write about it right away or does it vary? Or You can always keep a journal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that that way there's a conversation you have with yourself first before you ever mm-hmm. write about it. And, you know, I think that's a, a really like lost point of what a journal offers is the way in which the writer can offer themselves the insight on a regular basis so that when they are writing other things, they have a kind of record of what they might want to discuss and what they might not want to. So that part is certainly a valuable practice. You don't have to write about anything ever. Mm. The other way that you can create distance is to research whatever you're Mm. trying to write about so you can report it, hmm. by which I mean, like, read up on the subject, uh, get more perspectives in your own, learn more about what you think you're writing about so that uh, so that you're not just in that kind of fugue state of, this is what I believe, this must be true, you know. Because certainly one thing that I learned about in putting this collection together was that the things I needed to check on the most were the things that I was so sure I didn't need to. Wow. And, uh, and so it was really a pro- it became a process of like, okay, this is what I think I was thinking about when I was writing the novel, but what do my journals say? You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh my God. What, what do my emails from the time say? Wow. What do. Wow. Got emails. You know? <laughs> Bring in the receipts. <laughs> right. As Bring in always. the self receipts, you know? Yeah. So like. Receipts. Yes. Oh my God. Always <laughs> bring the receipts. Thank you. <laughs> so treating myself like a subject like that actually helped a great deal. So it was definitely a different aspect. It was a, then I could see like, okay, this was the book I was reading then. This was another book I was reading then. What edition did I have? Oh, I had this edition. How did that change my sense of what I was learning from that book? What did, you know, those were the kinds of things that I ended up pursuing and creating things like, you know, the autobiography of my novel essay or The Guardians, which was yeah. like a really difficult essay to write. I can't even imagine. Yeah. I, I have a question about that. I think one of the, you know, making a, a essay collection, which is bordering on a memoir and essays, and then calling it How to Write an Autobiogra- 
autobiographical novel sort of places the question of the place between fiction and non mm -hmm. as central. Uh, and I kind of think that that's something that uh, American literature is maybe like 20 years behind other places in the world um, on that question. I'm curious about what it feels like for you to thread that line to write nonfiction about writing fiction based on your life. Hmm. Well, I, you know, that's, uh, there are epistemological pleasures to writing each, right? Yeah. Like the pleasure of writing fiction is that you have invented everything that you need to invent. Mm. Uh, the pleasure of writing nonfiction is that you are struggling with these, it's an archeology span of the self. You're struggling with the things that have happened to you or happened around you or happened near you, uh, and looking for the truth that's in there. Mm. So, you know, I think the that's part of, for me at least, the distinction that I that I am interested in mm -hmm. for now. Um, I think if I had grown up in France, I might have a very different <laughs> idea of it. But I know, for example, like you know, uh, Gertrude Stein, uh, she grokked early on that the American public was fascinated with the question of whether something was real or imagined. Exactly. Actually. And, yes. and so like, and she pursued a path towards celebrity, which she also understood would be beneficial for her oh. in a very canny way um, uh, by playing with that notion mm -hmm. publicly with, uh, you know, her, her, uh, her most, some of her most famous works. Mm -hmm. So it was a really like, you know, it was a deliberate choice. And mm -hmm. uh, Janet Malcolm gets at this in in her amazing book about Gertrude and Alice, mm -hmm. Al uh, Two mm -hmm. Lives. So, you know, what is it like? It's, you know, I think for me, part of the, part of the collection was, the idea for the collection was, you know, what are the things that I couldn't fit in the novel? Mm. You know, that was, because, it, it, life is so baggy and there's so much that is to it like that doesn't fit inside the confines of a plot you know what is what are the things that I found too difficult to even approach back then that I can now think about you know what are the what are the things that I'm thinking about now based on all of that, you know, so there's sort of, it starts out with me as a reader and then gradually I turn into a writer mm -hmm. and then I turn into a teacher of writing. Mm -hmm. And so all, there's a, like a reflexive quality throughout that becomes the, the sort of measure of the book. Yes. Hi, BBs. Want to take things to the next level? Uh, Always. Join us on Twitter during and after the episode to keep the conversation going. Each week, we will pin an extra delectable question. <laughs> okay, Tommy. Um, at the top of our Twitter page, so y'all can add us, talk amongst yourselves. You can talk to Joe because I won't be there. Um, I will be there. I have nothing better For sustenance and some extra yum, 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 yum. So that's at Food for Thought Pod. As always, that's food, the number four, and thought spelled T-H-O-T. Mm, I've got that feeling where, you know, I'm full, but I could fit one more thing inside of me. Oh, God. Fran knows what I'm talking I about. Really <laughs> you really do, though. <laughs>
it's not just nachos, me. Maybe. So for our dessert, <laughs> <laughs> nachos. Yeah. Fuck you. For our dessert this week, Dennis is gonna lead our conversation. Take it away, baby. Thank you. So, okay, full disclosure, I have been obsessed with Tracy Ellis Ross <laughs> since I was a 14-year-old gaby in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Oh, we're going to we're going to talk about it. We're going to okay, talk about it. it. Um and the reason is because that's when I first encountered her because she was starting on um one of the most successful black sitcoms ever. Girlfriend. Um Girlfriends, <laughs> which is so the the Better and blacker version of Sex in the City, following four incredible black women True. in L.A. And me at my little all-boys Lily White prep school in Hunting Valley, Ohio, was watching this show every Monday night when I got back home um, from figure skating practice. <laughs> True story. And I was getting my entire life. I was loving the fashion. I was loving the banter. I was loving the wit. Um, and so that was my first exposure to Tracy Ellis. And then when that show ended after eight successful seasons... We saw her in bit moments in different shows for a couple of years. She was on private practice as a therapist for a few episodes. I, I remember that. Right? Yeah, it was right. so good. She, she, um, Fuck. it was a whole thing. She was in a Tyler Perry movie, Daddy's Little Girls, as so many of us are wont to do. And then. <laughs> no, I am not wont to do that. Um, I mean, so many, so many of, of the black actors and actresses, um, because there's such limited opportunity and he gives great opportunity. And then she got the role of Rainbow Bo Johnson on Blackish and she. She became, in many ways, America's sitcom sweetheart. And I love her. Um, Tracy is, one of my favorite things about her is that she's 45 and single. And she is outspoken and educated and brilliant. She went to Brown University. She's super smart. Um, she's a feminist. She's all about anti-racism. And I just want to leave you with, like, or bring in a couple of things that she has said recently that haven't really resonated with me, even though I admit that I'm not a 45-year-old black woman. (laughs) I often feel like I am. I pretty much am. Um, So she talks a lot about the fact that she's 45 and epically successful and the daughter of an epically successful icon, Diana Ross. She's okay. (laughs) She aight. And still, people come up to her and they're like, well you know, you're 45, there's still time for your life to have meaning. There's still time for you to find a man (gasps) and have babies. And um, she has a a couple of things to say to that, and I want to bring them to us here, and I want you guys to discuss. (laughs) One, when she talks about her, her sort of career and how that works into what her life is. I was always very big into imagination, and I would dress up or talk as different characters to make people laugh, she says. I think my big personality developed to protect myself. If you think about it, which I have had some time to do... A large personality keeps people at the same distance as a shy personality. You still get to protect yourself from others, she says, as she struggled with loneliness while growing up. I mean, I'm so close to my family, and I went to every single school with my sister, the fabulous Rhonda Ross, who I've met a few times. Oh my god, bye. Including college. So I always had someone there. But that's very different. Alone and lonely are different. So that's one. Here's the second one I want to bring to you. Well, this is talking about the whole conversation around babies. Well, that's the point of the human species, procreation. She's saying that people say this to her. And I'm like, I think there are a lot of babies. Isn't that part of what's going wrong? There's too many. (laughs) Some people could be working on the world being a better place or just being happy. Uh Um, And these are incredible. She talks about a philosophy of chosen solitude at this point in her life, where she's chosen to be with herself. And so I wanted to bring these forward to you guys, because um, 
I'm obsessed with them. And these are all things that in different ways we're thinking about and dealing with in our own lives. Um, the, the singleness in some ways, yeah. the thinking about getting older, um, you know, for some of us branching into our 30s. And I'm just curious to know, I guess, how you can draw from that or how you feel about those moments in your lives. Can can my chosen solitude come with someone who fists me three times a week? Oh, is my that, God. Is that, possible? is that possible? Alex is, like, putting his hand gingerly <laughs> on his head. Because I think I would be fine with that type of chosen solitude. Oh, my Joe God. Joe is a big fan of fisting. It's true. <laughs> he looked at me like yeah. I was crazy when I revealed to him that I had never been fisted. It's true. I find great refuge in that term, chosen solitude. Mm-hmm. And I love Tracy Ellis Ross so much. I find her Instagram stories and her Instagram in general to be contagious in the kind of unbridled joy she brings mm-hmm. to that platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I return, it's like one of the few, usually I'm discovering things and I'm like just scrolling through. She's one of the few that I will go and search just so yes, that I can go right. and check in on what is the unbridled joy of her chosen solitude. Um, and that's something that I would want for my own self. And if I am 45 and single and I don't have kids, I will be happy because at, because Tracy Ellis Ross did it. <laughs> um, yeah. And she made it look really good. Alex? I think that, you know, part of the background on this too, right, is like, how do I say this without, well, I mean... I'm thinking of all the women I know her age, my friends who are amazing women who are doing so well and have had to do so much with so little when it comes to the men who are available to them. Mm. And and so Mm. at a certain point, it's like, well, are you going to still keep looking over those radishes that are (laughs) getting old on the (laughs) shelf for you? Are you just going to like cook something else altogether? You know, like, yes. Grow your own motherfucking garden, girl. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Something else. So, here for this metaphor. Yeah. I, just, yes. I, I hope I pulled that off. Anyway, the, oh that was God. perfect. You know, I know amazing women, amazing women. And I, I like, I wish that they had, you know, they're heterosexual women. I wish that they had amazing men in their lives. Right now, so many of them do not. And so yeah. I can imagine that at a certain point, like, you know, I uh, I was actually I uh, like one of my favorite things that I that I did recently was um, I showed a, a friend of mine this the uh, Eartha Kit that laugh uh, compromise where she like they, yes! the interviewer is like would you compromise for a man and she just <laughs> she cackles she cackles at him in this yeah, like brilliant. way that is so it's like there's like a whole epic. In the registers of the cackle. Yes. Yes, yes. You know, she sounds where, like know, a super villain. She takes you on a journey. Yeah. She it's sounds incredible. like a super villain. She sounds also like she has survived a massacre. Yes, she has. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> she, literally, she literally did. She literally has. Basically. Right. So, and, but she's also like someone who, you know, had a three-way with uh, Marlon Brando and James Dean. Yeah! And like, yeah! You know, <laughs> she... She has had it she all. She is the thought she master queen. Oh had it all. Fun fact, yeah. Tracy Ellis Ross has reposted that video, first of all, the Eartha Kitt video. Fascinating. Uh, okay. She has. Sometimes having it all means like finding a way to include yourself or make yeah. yourself the center of it. Yeah. <gasps> right? Yes. Yes. Holy Finding shit. your <laughs> value. Perfect way to end. Dessert. My yeah. mouth is so full right now. Mm. Amazing. I Thanks. think that's what Tracy Ellis Ross is up to. Oh my God. <laughs> we love you, Tracy. Bye. Come on the show. I hope she's getting so much love. <laughs>
This episode of Food for Thought is made possible by the generous, unequivocal support of Rosé. And also, our partnership with Into, the new online magazine for queer news and culture. Head to intomore.com each week for a special little love letter from each of the thoughts. Our engineer is Alex Mead Fox at Spaceman Sound Studios. And our producer is the original House of Pancakes, Alexandra De Palma. (laughs) You can listen to Food for Thought at Apple Podcasts or wherever you podcasts are found. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Or I swear to God, I will find you in a dark alley. And I will run you through a 30-page presentation, PowerPoint presentation on why you should rate and review us because and that, that will be painful for everyone involved. Um, find us on Twitter and Facebook at Food for Thought Pod and Instagram at Gay Sluts Who Read. Sign up for our newsletter for episode insights, reading lists, and extra delectable content at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. And finally, email us with your questions, thoughts, concerns, and Always the big text. At thoughts at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. As always, that's food, the number four, and thought spelled how? T-H-O-T. See you next week. Bye. I just remember him saying, like, he was like, well, I haven't seen lemonade yet and Fran was like well we won't have a lot to talk about (laughs) (laughs) so you should probably go watch right now Um, where is my lie and then they boned ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt free dream come true baby It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.